Chapter 6 Like nearly everything I'd experienced with the Parachute Brigade, the journey home did not go according to plan. Our ship developed engine trouble and we were taken off at Algiers. We were billeted in sleeping cars which had been left in a siding, quite comfortable and luxurious after what we'd been used to in Italy. We were to be taken from Algiers in two ships which had been directed to two keys in the harbour. For some reason I'd been given the job of baggage officer. I had to store the parachute division's baggage on the two keys allocated to the two ships that were to take us all back to England, home and glory. For some reason that I've never been able to understand, I had a very clear vision of the two ships coming into the harbour and going to the wrong two keys. I was so certain of this that I made a thorough nuisance of myself going to everyone I could think of, from the divisional headquarters to the Algiers harbour master, telling them that I thought there'd been a mistake. I was told, very properly, to get on with the job and not ask silly questions. As you can imagine, there was a lot of baggage, and it took us two days to load it all onto the keys. Incidentally, it's odd that there was so much baggage going out when we came in with only what we could carry on our backs, but that's how it was. The day came, and I stood on the quay as the two ships steamed into the harbour and went directly to the wrong berths, exactly as I'd seen it. I've never had premonitions before or since this time, but when I had this one I had no doubt whatsoever. I was absolutely certain what would happen. It took us a whole day and a half to rearrange the baggage to the right keys, and certainly no one thanked me for being such a nuisance. We eventually boarded our ship on Christmas Day. It was pouring with rain as we stood on the quay. We had no Christmas dinner. In fact, we had no dinner at all. But you've never seen such a happy group of people. We were going home. The voyage from Algiers to England was uneventful. Unfortunately, the American services were in control of everything, so it was a dry ship. However, I had taken the precaution of smuggling a bottle of scotch aboard, so I survived the voyage with no great hardship. The army likes to give officers duties to carry out, whether or not they're really useful. It's the principle of the thing. On this occasion, they came up with a real beauty. We officers were sent out to a lookout point, in rotation, to report in case we were attacked from the air or from the sea. It was very cold up there, but otherwise quite pleasant to watch the sea and the sky, something that I've always enjoyed. There were three telephones in the lookout, and so I thought it would be a good idea to check them out. I got no answer at all from the first two telephones, but on the third attempt... After some five or ten minutes, I got an answer. I asked who I was talking to, and was told not to ask silly questions. What had it got to do with me who I was talking to? I explained that I was in the lookout post. Never heard of it, I was told. I said I was there to spot air raids or other forms of attack. Oh yes, and what would you do about it if we were attacked? I said all I could do was telephone someone and tell them about it. I was told in no uncertain manner that no one would take any notice of anyone except their own ship's officers. I could see his point of view, and had to admire the command of the English language that he showed in telling me, more or less, where I could put the telephone. It was a cold night, and a long one, but I was happy. We landed in Liverpool, and I found a telephone kiosk on the quayside. So I dialed Pinner 26, and to my surprise got through straight away. 
I hadn't heard June's voice for nearly three years and can't begin to describe how I felt. And then a voice that I'd never heard before said, Hello, Daddy. It took a few days before I had leave, but we eventually met in the Savoy Hotel. I found they'd given us a room with twin beds, so naturally I had to change the room. While I'd been on a walking tour of southern Italy, June had been in far greater danger from the air raids over London and sometimes over Pinner. She also had to endure the V1 flying bomb, which came over southern England night and day, every night and every day. June remembers pushing Frankie in the pram when a V1 stopped overhead. She didn't know which way to run, so she just carried on walking, whistling a happy tune, and obviously lived to tell the tale. On another occasion, she was in the greengrocer's when the shopkeeper referred to her as Mrs. Junker. At the time, Junkers were feared enemy planes. June, who's the eldest daughter of a proud Air Force family, her father was a World War I flying hero, and in World War II he was the founder of 604 Squadron, was outraged. My name is Yucca, not Junker, she said. It's a Swiss name, and my husband is out there somewhere, fighting the Germans to protect England. The poor greengrocer never made that mistake again, and to be fair, the names do sound very similar. June thought that if she described the bombers as puffer trains, this might seem less frightening to Frankie. But she remembers one night in Pinna when she heard a flying bomb coming over and Frankie said, That's a train, isn't it, Mummy? Yes, darling, said June. It's a train. There'll be a big bang soon, won't there, Mummy? I suppose it's quite surprising that my eldest daughter didn't grow up with a morbid fear of trains. We didn't have very long together before I got my next posting. The war office had decided that they had far too many parachute officers in proportion to the number of parachute-trained other ranks, so it was a case of last in, first out, and I was out. I was very upset at the time, but had come to realise that it was part of the good luck that had been with me right through the war, because the 1st Parachute Division were later to be dropped on Arnhem, and not many came back. I was, however, very pleased to be posted to the 4th Field Squadron, which was the most famous squadron in the 8th Army in North Africa, and part of the 7th Armoured Division. So I now wore the Desert Rat symbol on my arm, of which I was as proud as I had been to wear the Red Beret of the Airborne Division. We spent some time training in Ripon, on the construction of the Bailey Bridge, which I might describe as grown-up Meccano, this was equipment that we'd never seen in Africa or in Italy, so the training was very necessary for all of us. We old veterans of the Desert War were very surprised at the attitude of the army that had stayed in England. They were all so ruddy keen and spartan. In the Eighth Army we'd learned that any damn fool can make himself uncomfortable, and the obvious way to survive was to avail oneself of every comfort that came to hand. The home troops, on the other hand, seemed to regard any comfort available as being too soft and unsoldierly. This was very different from the style of the 7th Armoured Division. Eventually, of course, the day was approaching for us to go to France. We were very upset to learn that we wouldn't be landed on D-Day, but the day after. Monty, in his usual way, had to talk in terms of cricket, and in an attempt to make us feel less left out, he told us that... One does not put one's best batsman into bat first. 
In hindsight, it was an outrageous comparison, but proved to be just as well for me and part of my usual luck to miss the worst of that great bloodbath. I remember looking at the green corn springing up all over England and wondering whether I'd live to see it harvested. We all knew what was involved on the shores of France and I don't think many of us would have given it better than an even chance.'